Happy New Year, and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we feature animation legends Don Bluth and Gary Goldman. So here we are, first podcast of 2016. Another year. Why do we do it, eh, Steve? We do it because we love it, Ben. Damn straight. Sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. I, it's all right. I'm used to you. My enthusiasm. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's not uh, what anyone's ever prepared for. <laughs> I think people are prepared for anything after that last podcast you put out, Ben. The uh, the outtakes. I don't think people are expecting anything now. I think we can do whatever we want. How was your holiday season? It was great. Plenty of traveling about. Plenty of, uh, you know, merriment. And How was your Christmas, Ben? For the most part, the holidays are fine. Beginning of the new year has not been uh, so great, but uh, what I and I'm sure many other people learned this holiday season to be thankful for, at least we're not Stephen Avery. Explain. Uh, I'd tell you what, Google it, but only at a point when the next 10 hours of your schedule is clear. Oh, is this that murderer thing? You know what? I'm not even going to start because it's not that kind of podcast, but holy shit. It's a lot of fun. Any kind of bite the skin off your knuckles way. Of course, it would be more apropos to reflect on the animated holiday programming, which we uh, spoke of just before the holidays. How did you find all that in the end? Enjoyed it. It's great, isn't it? Sitting around watching some animation, all that. I finally watched for the first time, right the way through, Arthur Christmas. Never yeah. seen it right the way through before. And I loved it. This might be one of my favourite Christmas films now. I feel a little vindicated, because I had... I don't know why people just did not want to be prepared to publicly say that they enjoyed that film when it came out. I was sort of quite happy with it as well when I saw it. It seemed like it was just the right balance of like cynical, wasn't dark in any respect, but it was dry. It was quite adult in its humor. The concepts were great. I thought the little jokes were great. I, I, it's hard to say what's going to be a future Christmas classic. I sort of feel like we're done with those. <laughs> We've kind of, Christmas has kind of had its fill yeah. in a sense. So it's hard to um, make any kind of contribution to that arena. You know, I think Nightmare Before Christmas is sort of like one of the last major ones. And, you know, debatably, you know, for some people, that's more a Halloween film. Certainly in the last 10, 15, 20 years, like, you know, no one's really chomping at the bit to make sure they're in front of the TV because Jingle All the Way is on. <laughs> Well, I guess Elf did pretty well. Yeah, Elf, Elf. I, I'd, I'd, I'd give it to Elf. Yeah, that's that's the. Uh, I think that's the film that everyone gets excited about, possibly. But uh, certainly, from, from an animation uh, context, yeah, absolutely. There's they're few and far between. I wasn't actually in the country for a lot of the scheduled programming, such as Stickman and the Farmers Llamas. I did, however, get to do a bit of catching up when I got back. What I really enjoyed, although I'm, I'm interested to see what your thoughts are on it, was the uh, Ardman documentary. Mm. I enjoyed that as well. It was great. It's a real, really nice to see them honoured in such a way. 
I only have one criticism of it because, you know, it's been five minutes, so I have to be a doubter yeah. about something. <laughs> and I would be interested in, in seeing if you if you felt similarly, but it seemed like it was a celebration, not so much of the extensive world of Arben, but a, the, the mainstream feature film and associated, you know, major television shows, stuff that's already kind of in the public eye. Hmm. And for me, a lot of the stuff that I really enjoyed were the moments more toward the beginning where they would discuss other projects, advertising, instances of them expanding themselves, dipping their toes into other waters. And as Wallace and Gromit has become a behemoth and Shaun the Sheep has sprung from it and they've produced, you know, all these great feature films, there's an awful lot of other stuff that they've done that I I thought they maybe could have used this documentary as an opportunity to to perhaps shine a light on. You know, Mm. the short film work, for example, some of their other more adventurous commercial projects of late to kind of actually you know lift the curtain and say by the way this is also what they do this is all this other stuff and it's actually quite a wide range of of you know disparate design styles and things like that they did miss a trick there but uh, you know if it's like peter peak stuff for example yeah off the top of my head yeah it would have been nice to see a bit more of that you know uh the i suppose the the Ardman classics dvd is where you'll get where you'll get that you know if you wanted to a more kind of uh, something that's still commercially accessible, but still delves into a little bit more of um, Ardman's uh, more adventurous past or more kind of um, less mainstream past, shall we say? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's there's an awful lot of ground to cover, and maybe the issue was if you open that door, you know, how much do you have to? But you know, I'm not like I'm not saying I'm I'm sitting there fuming because they're, they're not talking about chop socky chucks. <laughs> Because of what we do, I guess. Yeah. I'm generally more interested in when they actually kind of step out of that comfort zone and they do something a little stranger to marry that with. So you're not going to see a... You, you're upset that you didn't see like a 20-minute making of Babylon. You know what I quite enjoyed, actually? They got... Uh, was it Merlin? They got doing the... Uh, just a tiny amount. Yeah. And then moving just a tiny amount. <laughs> and I don't know if he was doing the bit or if like they actually got him to do it like... I don't know. It was funny. He was doing the exact same thing with the fingers as well. <laughs> do you think that they drew short straws to see who, who had to do that particular bit? It was nice. The documentary was great. I love seeing the old behind-the-scenes pictures as well, which we're not we've not really seen before. So it was full of new stuff. I I was I settled down to watch it, thinking, oh, I've probably seen all this before and all that kind of stuff. But it was still a nice nice kind of angle, you know. The the really sort of it was good for you know new and old Ardman fans. But yeah, maybe a little bit too much of the uh, the mainstream stuff for us uh, animation hipsters, Ben. Exactly. So we stroke our beers indignantly. <laughs> yeah. What else did you get up to over Christmas then, animation-wise? Besides, or, or was it nothing? Was it just? Was that it? It was a pretty animationless period. That was my kind of um, gift to myself, because <laughs> it was such an animation overload the preceding 11 months. And I knew that, you know, because I'm already back into it. And when you get to the point where you're so relaxed, you're actually sort of anxious to get back to work. That was sort of what I was hoping for. And that was what, uh, that was how it turned out. So uh, in terms of the world of animation in the industry, we are at that point, once again, straight out of the gate this year, BAFTA nominations announced. Yay! Award season. We need uh, we need some kind of uh, jingle for award season because every year it's just greeted with your sort of dull kind of enthusiasm. Like it's award season again. 
I don't know what you mean. I, if, I wouldn't say dull. Effervescent, if anything. Ugh, here's another three podcasts chattering on about the Oscars and the BAFTAs. <laughs> I don't know where this attitude comes from. I, I think it's great. It's what a celebration of this industry, Steve. <laughs> You know, opportunities. We've done well. I mean, when I was putting the um, the BAFTA announcement article together, you know, these podcasts, we've got a podcast dedicated to every nominee. So people can listen back to the uh, interviews with, you know, Richard Williams, Nina Gantz, Simon Cartwright. They're all there, Ben. We've covered it all. And we have plenty of interviews also, of course, with the feature nominees. We have Mark and Richard from Sean the Sheep and Will Beecher. We have a video of him playing with the, uh, with the puppets there. And uh, the Minion guys got a video on that, too. And if, I, if I'm not mistaken, we did sneak in an interview with uh, the directors of Inside Out just before, or the director and producer of Inside Out just before the holidays broke. We certainly did, yeah. To coincide with its home media release. We've covered them all. So I guess we don't really have to talk about it. Yeah, we do. Uh, people, are <laughs> people are a little bit kind of perplexed, really, if you look at the BAFTA list. Uh, that the Minions is on there. I mean, I know we only get three with the BAFTAs, but um, people were wondering where the Peanuts movie was or where um, the Good Dinosaur was. I don't think anyone would be hugely surprised that uh, Minions are present in any situation. You can't walk down the aisle of a supermarket without some tie-in branding, yellow and glowing in your peripheral vision, so that they're present at the BAFTAs. Not a huge surprise. No. No, no. I would be lying if I was saying I was a huge fan of Minions, but I, I saw little clips from it when I was putting together the Lightbox video, and, you know, going through clips and looking at stuff frame by frame when you're getting an edit right, and I was like, oh, there's actually some quite skillful little moments of animation here. Also some, you know, little moments of mixed media here and there, and uh, it's just unfortunate that watching more than five minutes of the actual film makes me want to brush my teeth with a cheese grater. <laughs> but other than that, I, I applaud the, the techniques and the, uh, the work that went into it. If they win a BAFTA, good for them. It's about time they got some recognition. <laughs> so what feature film are you rooting for? Oh, come on. Well, you even have to ask me that, Ben. Evidently. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I would, I would, let's see, I would assume Sean the Sheep. Yeah, well done. <laughs> but a national prize? Absolutely. And not just that, it's, it just, it's so, it's so, you know, unique and original. I'm, I'm Unique. It is, unique. <laughs> Don't say I never give you nothing. Well, <laughs> such <laughs> treats, Ben. But <laughs> it's nice to see Inside Out there as well, you know, well done. Um, and it's also, if you'll notice, the Inside Out has been given a screenplay nod as well, the original screenplay nod, which is good, good for them. But I'm not, I wasn't sort of, I wasn't really won over by Inside Out. It was great. It was a nice, nice idea. Well, you compared it to Herman's Head. I compared it to the Numbskulls. It's, it's, it's kind of been done before, but it's, it, was, it was nice and unique and original, but it was still quite lazy in certain aspects. I mean, the characters... Uh, a character called Anger. What's his? What's his tick? He's angry. Oh, that was what they were going for. Yeah, yeah. I know it was. Uh, I know it was pretty kind of like you it know. It was subtle. It was subtle. It was on a different level, and you know, it takes an animation researcher such uh, of my level to kind of point this out to people, Ben. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's... the world is grateful for the. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah, no, it's it, whereas Sean the sheep just kind of 
you know, went for it, and you know, it was a it's a a, a wonderful kind of um, homage to the things that they love. It was a great story to take these kind of little six minute episodes and turn them into a feature. Man O' Man is in amongst the uh, shorts there. Mm. That's an interesting one. I've never seen a film generate so much debate. Not, in this case, not like this film shouldn't count because it's not animation, but how can we rationalize this as an animated film? Because mm. we want the cool kid on our team. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> like, everyone just loves it so much that they just, you know, animation, sure. Yeah, no <laughs> but I, to me, if it has the same ingenuity and the same kind of passion and the same craft as animation, yes, it is animated. The mouths are animated, or whatever part of it is animated. That was the that was the rational. <laughs> well, there's a mouth in every shot. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> f- it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll do. <laughs> but you know, when you look at certain aspects of it, like when the bit where they when they're going on their their run. And there's the the rolling uh, street. That's so close to animation. That's so kind of you know. And, and Simon himself, Simon Cartwright, is a you know he's a seasoned animator. It's not like he's 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 just kind of he looked at his watch and and realised he only had three months of production left and thought, oof, I can't animate all this. I'll let's just do it puppets. People won't notice. It's not like that's happened. You know, it, it, the guy's a you know he knows about animation. He knows about how it works and. And uh, he's taken all that and put it into a into a, a different, uh, I suppose, a different medium, and it's worked. I would say so. I think it's a fantastic film. It is quite funny, like seeing how like the nominees for the short films, how it is literally like three consecutive podcasts are the three BAFTA <laughs> nominated short films. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah, we, uh, we got the sight, my friend. We got the shine. It's it's our uh, you know. Amazing influence. Well, the Rupert Murdochs of animation will make anything happen. <laughs> Our evil animation empire, horrible, you know, tentacles all over the place. We'll make it happen, Ben. We look over this vast, vast industry and we pluck these up-and-comers out of obscurity like Richard Williams and say, you know what, I see something in that kid. <laughs> he shows a lot of promise, Richard Williams, doesn't he? Of the visual effects films. Which one uh, left you most visually affected <laughs> I, was it star wars oh yes it was i love star wars as much as you do ben you love star wars don't you let's talk about star wars and every star wars fan seemed to have a great christmas <laughs> it was just sort of you know it was good it seemed like i obviously i'm not a fan of star wars but like to see everyone be so disappointed as they were in the you know late 90s or whatever when they made what are now the old ones but were new it was such a disappointment en masse. Like, everything that everyone kind of said in terms of voicing their disappointment, they've been saying the opposite of. Yeah. In terms of, you know, observation. That's sort of nice that someone came in and turned it around. Lots of interesting sort of articles and analyzing the role of creator and the relationship, perhaps, of creator and property and when that relationship should come to an end. I saw a little snippet of a George Lucas interview himself working through his own demons about that. I'm interested in the process, I suppose. Hmm. I couldn't just go and see the film, but I, I, I know what was going on. But from an observer's perspective, I do find it interesting just how something um, is so beloved and yet so a pinata for its fans. Please us at all points <laughs> and we'll tolerate you. Yeah. 
But make one step wrong. Even half a step wrong. I saw the film. I enjoyed it. For me, it was great. It was vindication for those films that we'd seen before, particularly the the first two, Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, that pretty pretty bad. But it's it was a nice to have this kind of vindication. It was like, oh, we you, you put us through that, but here's a nice, here's a good film. And it had all that kind of uh, nice nostalgia about it. And finally, had one criticism about it is that it was a bit of, the film was like the best of Star Wars. The story, everything that happened, the way it happened, the way it all went. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it was it was basically all the things that worked with the old Star Wars. Let's take the bits that worked. Let's not put Ewoks in. Let's put, you know, let's do this. Let's, what do we get rid of? What do we keep? Let's do that. What story did we like? We like that story. Let's change the characters in that story and add some new ones and, and put that bit in. Something I thought was a little interesting. Apparently Yoda isn't in it. Oh, he's, no, here's the thing. He's not in it, but I've seen so many articles about how he is in it because um, Frank Oz came round to... Um, J.J. Abrams' office and recorded a little bit of dialogue and so there's a little bit in it but yeah Yoda's not in it they throw in a little nod yeah that's it the whole thing's a nod but wasn't he like the the one like beloved Muppet of all of them he was the king of the Muppets I mean he's sort of like the mascot of the whole thing just from a merchandising perspective well they've not they've not stopped the merchandise Disney um, I mean going to the, the Disney store now it's it's crazy. There's Yodas everywhere. There's Darth Vader's everywhere, and they're not even in the new film. But uh, the other films that are on the list are for the BAFTA for visual effects: the um, Ex Machina, Mad Max, uh, Ant Man, and The Martian. Uh, did you see Ex Machina? I have not seen any of the visual effects nominees. Oh right, okay. End conversation. Okay, <laughs> I wanted to see Mad Max because literally everyone said it was amazing. Yeah. Just didn't really get much uh, much chance to go out to the old uh, cityplex. Hmm. I still need to see Ant Man and The Martian. They're the, they're the two that I. I mean, The Martian uh, got quite heaps of praise as well. Um, what is it? Just Matt Damon, kind of Matt Damon. on Mars on his own. Is that what it was? I very possibly. Well, fair enough. <laughs> the book's supposed to be good. I have very recommendations to read the book. Um, quite a bit. The Martian um, and Ant Man. Uh, another uh, another Disney thing there next to the the Star Wars um, franchise is the Marvel property there, um, which I really wanted to see, but I've I've not got around to seeing. It's been busy, Ben. I can't see live action films. I've got to get involved in animation. Precisely. Yeah. You've got your priorities. What uh, what else is getting you excited in uh, this adorable industry of ours? Uh, nothing. Nothing? Nothing better. No ongoing uh, campaigns for uh, veteran animation legends, perhaps? Yeah, uh, as, you, as you quite rightly hinted at there, Ben, uh, Don Bluth and Gary Goldman are back. Back from our childhoods. Were you a, uh, a fan of their films as a youngster, Ben? Well, you couldn't miss them. They were certainly huge films back in the day. And I think my sister was a big fan of... Uh, was All Dogs Go to Heaven one of them? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, everyone, of course, knows the American tale. And and then there are some others that, uh, I guess, the sort of more recent ones, I suppose, I'm less familiar with. The stuff like, uh, you know, Anastasia. And uh, what was the space one? Titan AE. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that one just sort of passed me by. Hmm. 
But there was a certain period, I think, where they produced it. I mean, it was in the dinosaurs, Land Before Time. It was that was pretty huge. That was 80s, That was right? superb. That was my personal yeah. favourite. Spawned like 8 billion sequels. <laughs> 13, Ben. 13 oh, Land well, Before well. Time sequels. But they... That's a little less. <laughs> but still, that's excessive. But um, Don Bluth and uh, Gary Goldman obviously have absolutely nothing to do with those sequels, as you can tell if you've ever watched any of them. Not even the second one? or just nope. like They only did the first so it was one? Like, We've done the first one, and then somebody said, you know what would be great? Is if we milked this thing to death. <laughs> Kids love dinosaurs. Well, not, not, well, not only that is that, you know, not only did they make 13 sequels and a TV series and everything else, it's that everyone else had a go at making the film. You know, Disney Dinosaur is very much uh, in the same vein as The Land Before Time. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, have you seen The Good Dinosaur, Ben? Uh, I've, I've heard of it. Have you heard of it? <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I've, I've I've heard people compare that to um, to the the Land Before Time, but maybe not just because it's got dinosaurs in it. But certainly, Disney's dinosaur uh, is a is a direct copy of the uh, of the Land Before Time. But as a, as a kid, I absolutely loved that film, Land Before Time. Uh, the uh, the All Dogs Go to Heaven. Uh, I didn't see the Secret of Nim. That's that's that one kind of passed me by as a kid. But that's the one that that started everything off and not only that is it put the frighteners into disney because uh yeah i don't know if you know the story ben but um the the don bluth gary goldman john pomeroy and a load of others all left disney um back in the the late 70s uh because they were sick of the way that things were going they weren't uh, it was it became more of the kind of corporate structure as opposed to it being about making the making the films about the craft about you know going to making these art films as opposed to making uh, what Disney wanted to make is, you know, really kind of bland um, films and, you know, cutting corners and, you know, cutting expenses and everything else. And The Secret of of, of Nim kind of proved that um, you didn't need a massive budget to add shadows, to have the whites of eyes in characters, to have um, special effects and, and and lighting effects and everything else uh in in films and when it when it did uh reach this kind of critical acclaim that it did reach it, it kind of scared disney and, and disney decided well we better we better kind of put our foot back on the gas i think that's that's a good case for you know the existence of competition someone gets a little bit antsy they up their game a bit i but i'm a firm advocate of that mm, absolutely the one thing of theirs that I wouldn't have realized would have been from the same uh, artistic minds, young and though I was, the uh, video game Dragon's Lair. Yeah. Something of a, uh, at the time it would have been sort of mind-blowing what they were able to do with that. Absolutely. In, in an age where everyone's looking at pixels, not very, um, you know, what was it, 8-bit games back then? I don't think there would have been 16-bit graphics. And then all of a sudden there's this, this full feature quality anima- animated um, arcade game available to play. And the characters can, can be controlled by, uh, you know, a joystick and a few buttons. I mean, uh, growing up in, in the UK, I didn't really have much of a kind of... We didn't go to the arcades, uh, only when we were on holiday or something like that. Um, like, I suppose in America... Um, 
you know, it was it's more like uh, more of an institution over there is, is going to the arcade and sticking your quarters in a machine and. I think uh, we have arcades here, don't we? We have them, and and the and the games I kind of remember because remember Dragon's Lair was released in 1983, um, and I was born in 1984, so I was a little bit too young for Dragon's Lair when it was first released. But uh, when I was younger, it was it was the games had stepped up a bit, and I remember uh, the Simpsons game and the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game being the kind of firm favourites of mine uh, in the arcade. Uh, if I did, ever did go to the arcade, but did you? Did, were, were we grown up in Canada? Was it was it a big thing over there? Well, I, I mean, I grew up in here and Canada, and I felt it was about the same. Most bowling alleys would have an arcade area. It seemed to me, hmm. yeah, any kind of thing with like a fairground or a holiday resort or things like that. It seemed fairly common. I thought. Hmm. I certainly didn't feel like uh, the UK were being sort of shortchanged of arcade machines and things like that. But the culture of the medium aside, what it was that made this game so kind of exceptional was that I guess they, this was an animated feature essentially that had an interactive component to it. Absolutely. So this was, and what are the, was it laser discs they used back then? Yeah, back in the day. So, and that was probably quite a bit before laser disc was like a home media thing which it was for about five minutes. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but what a five minutes, Ben. So yeah, the, I guess the, the sort of thing is, and there are a few other sort of games that would use this. Some of them I remember used like live action. I remember there was a Western game that used like live action footage and it would respond to, you know, whichever of the screen you shot at. Mm-hmm. It's like a sort of like pick your own adventure, whatever you do then tells the the game what bit of footage to play next. So it really did enable you to be immersed in this feature film almost Hmm. and then uh, of course the version of dragon's layer i think i actually ended up with for like the nintendo was like a this completely different like platform sprite animation one like they just took the characters and made like just a fairly standard game for like home consoles yeah yeah certainly this was a bit of a game changer and in a way it's not something that probably took off in the sort of home console market until what very late 90s like playstation era that would have been the time that they actually would have been able to actually use that kind of technology. Yeah. Well, it, it is, but like you say, you're talking there about the, um, uh, the eight bit or 16 bit graphic version of Dragon's Lair. Um, and I think there's like a 3d version of Dragon's Lair, sorry, CG version of Dragon's Lair as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, but I think that the lasting legacy of Dragon's Lair is people remembering the animation, people remembering uh, the the joy of the animation and 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 the the fluidity and certainly no one had ever seen a feature which you can control before. I mean, amazing how how great's that? Um, because you know the story going through a castle castle to save a princess could be really done in any video game, but when it's animated, it becomes something. I think it became something a little bit special, and that's what people remember. I believe is the animation. People remember the animation, and people are still asking for the animation. So. Um, Don and Gary have created this Indiegogo campaign, um, which at the time of recording is still going, um, and has smashed its target. Um, so it will happen, uh, and they're after making Dragon's Lair the movie. They're after taking that animation and turning it into, uh, you know, from from the console to the screen, so people don't have to to worry about the fingers and and thumbs. They can just uh, give them a rest and watch the uh, the animation unfold. Um, but yeah, they're making a pitch uh, film. So hopefully, um, you know, the pitch film will be made this year and uh, and then 
who knows, feature uh, inbound. So that is what people have, I guess, been been funding is the pitch film then. That's right, yeah. Something that I imagine is going to be quite, what, short, concentrated, like a mood board almost? Yeah, I think maybe a short film is, is, the, is the goal here, as opposed to, a, to, to that kind of uh, a mood board as they want to share it with their with their funders and I, I think what we see from or what we hear from in the interview uh, uh initially is is Gary talking about the difference between getting money from uh Indiegogo and getting money how they used to uh, get their money it was from um you know finances and and Hollywood and you know going through all that kind of um rigmarole uh, to get their films um funded brave new world it is so we have Don Bluth and Gary Goldman discussing this very venture yes we do, and also their uh, extensive uh, careers. Take a look at um, leaving Disney, What's uh, what was missing from Disney animation. They don't hold back any punches uh, in discussing their careers. It's a very candid uh, interview. They also talk a little bit about Ireland, because obviously they had a, an Im- immense impact on the Irish animation industry, which we're massive fans of uh, over on Squiggly, Ben. Mm-hmm. And obviously uh, they talk about the Indiegogo campaign for Dragon's Lair, the movie. So it's two people in this interview. The first voice that you hear is Gary Goldman. Ever, ever since Kickstarter uh, jumped uh, into the world in 2009, I had uh, emails coming into our company here and, and even ex-employees that were screaming at us, get this movie going, you know, get it off the shelf and, and, and go after, uh, go to the Kickstarter. It's very successful. A lot of people have done a lot of, uh, you know, good startup money on and uh, Get back in the game is what they're they're doing. And Don was off. Uh, he's got a theater. He's been uh, directing and producing plays, music, especially musicals. And uh, and I've sort of had a small project going through our company, our Don Booth Films Company, and, and very desperately want to get back into feature animation. So uh, um, you know, it's just people screaming at us, saying, "Come on, do something!" <laughs> so we jumped into Kickstarter, not really knowing much about how to set up the whole, you know, we followed their their regulations and their rules for, you know, uh, rewards for people that become backers and contribute money to it. And uh, while the program was going on and we were doing okay, we could see that it was not going to make our goal. And we decided that, you know, maybe we'll shut this down before it's over. So we pull it out instead of it failing. And in the, in the meantime, Indiegogo was calling and says, you're, you're with the wrong people. <laughs> Come over to us. You know, we have a whole film and, and, and uh, gaming section that would, uh, that would help you more, you know. So listening to all the com- comments from the people on Kickstarter, we, we made a whole list of people, of, of, of perks. And we had a young man that came out here that kind of a huge fan of, of what we did in our past. And he came in and says, I've worked on a few of these, you know, I can help you. And uh, so he's been here. He actually came from Florida and came here to Arizona to work with us on this. And so he's he's doing a terrific job. And he's got us on our toes constantly, dragging us into another area of the house and doing little videos on us to keep the, to keep some excitement up about what we're trying to get done. Excellent. I mean, as a as a producer, Gary, is this a completely different game to what you're used to? Because uh, the history of yourself and Don is peppered with highs and lows and getting the films made. These kind of, I wouldn't say struggles, I would say uh, perhaps a, a difficulty in with getting the vision made. How, how are you finding the crowdfunding experience compared to the experience of working with Hollywood? 
completely different because you're you're actually talking to thousands of people uh, as far as mon- the money you get when you're when you're working with Hollywood or outside investors because we've had both we've had studios that have put the money up but uh, in the first the first 12 years of being independent from Disney uh, we were we were we were uh, financed by pr- uh, private financing uh, with the exception of the the deal we did with Steven Spielberg yeah. Universal financed that so I mean it's it's different you, it's usually a one-shot thing so it, when we did secret of Nim we were surprised it was one man that put up all the money for for the secret of Nim. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it was a, a group of guys that this this person was an investor in their company, Pre- provide financing for live action movies, and th- these guys reached out to us because they heard rumors. These these guys that were in this company called Aurora were ex Disney executives, and they had fingers on the inside of Disney, and somehow they heard that in in our last few months at Disney that we weren't really simpatico with what they were doing at. Uh, at Disney as far as uh, upper management and what they wanted done. In those days, it was they wanted cheaper. Uh, yeah. Cheaper. <laughs> the, the beginning of what you guys created is is legendary. The idea of, of Don's 42nd birthday taking everyone off and, and leaving and, and setting up shop elsewhere. Uh, what was missing from Disney Animation and what forced that departure? Well... Uh... <laughs> That's a really, really good question. Um, I think if you look at the history of traditional animation and you look at the, the pictures that Walt himself was directing, uh, he was a driven individual, and uh, he said at one point, and you'll see this in his video, that he wasn't creating cartoons. He was creating art. Uh, that is a big deal. That is a big deal. To create art, you know, you subject yourself to every critic in the world who thinks they know what art is. And so <laughs> he was trying really hard, and I think he fought against all of the, the business elements that can possibly be you know, brought up when you're trying to produce something because it takes money to produce art in the form of animation because it's such a labor-intensive process. It's a lot of people that have to work on it. Uh, and so that money was... And Bank of America funded the first feature film. And so you've got Snow White coming out and some people believing that it's going to be a great success and many, many people in Hollywood thinking it was a folly and it would cause them to shut down. So um, I grew up on those Disney pictures that, that he was trying to make as art. And as I grew up on those, I mean, I was in absolutely enthralled with what I saw on the big screen. So it was my desire to go to Disney's and to actually be part of that. But I think I was born just a little bit too late. So what happened when I arrived at Disney's in 19, I think it was 55, um, things were changing quite a bit. Walt was already building Disneyland, and it's kind of disconnected from uh, the animation form of the art. And he was now making animatronics and, you know, a, a world which is a theme world at Disneyland. So that his heart was, was now split in two. He had two worlds he was serving. I think when I got there, what I felt was the pictures were not quite what I grew up with. They were changing, and I think it was because he was moving elsewhere. And then um, when he died in 1966, um, I had gone away, and I didn't come back until you know 1971, I think I returned to Disney Studio, and he was already gone. I was there when he was there, 
And so I saw the difference immediately. So what caused uh, us, I began to meet other young animators and hopefuls like Jerry Goldman here and several others. And we began to say, we don't know how to resurrect or bring back that beautiful art that he was trying to create. And it wasn't prevalent in the studio at that time. We were kind of, everyone, get this, everyone in the studio seemed to be saying, well, what would Walt have done? which is a strange thing for an artist to say. Hmm. Uh, what would Walt have done? And in every cupboard in the studio, if you opened a door, there was his picture. So they, they needed a leader out there. And, and so we were, we were hungry to have a leader, somebody, and not just people saying, what would he have done? Um, and I, then I, we said, you know, we can't learn these lessons, but there was a bunch of us that we were all there to try and figure out how to be good animators, and nobody was being trained to be a director because those were growing old too. Um, so we said, we need to find out how to do this if we're going to carry on at the Disney studio. We couldn't rent, we couldn't use the equipment at the studio because it was all unionized. So we went into my house, into my garage, and we began to get our own equipment so that we could just, you know, free, free, free fly with it so we could do what we had to do. Um, now, that was, that was a little thing that we created called Banjo the Woodpile Cat. It took us a long time to do that. It was only 26 minutes long. Uh, but we learned some things from it. And from that experience, we said, they're not doing what they used to do at the studio anymore. And we went to some animators one time and said, that beautiful water in Fantasia, you know, where Mickey is, uh, the little broom is enchanted and is dumping water all over the place and in the well. We say, how did you make that water so that it looks so wet? Uh, and I remember Frank Thomas saying, you know what? I, I can't remember. We've forgotten. Uh, did anyone write it down? Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. So see, little things like that kept happening, and we kept saying, we're losing the war here uh, with art. So we went out and pioneered again to see if we could discover what they couldn't remember to tell us. And in discovering that, a lot of other things. We would go back to the studio and say, we found out that this isn't a money issue. These things can be put back in the picture like shadows under the characters, like this wonderful water that you saw in Fantasia, can be put back in without that much money. And then probably the straw that broke the camel's back with me was when we were doing Rescuers, um, <laughs> they, they decided not to paint the little mouse's white of the eye, but to just paint its skin color because it would cost too much to change colors. Right. So I thought, oh, da, 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 what are we doing here? You know, we just kept losing more stuff. So we said, why did we leave? We left because uh, the corporate web, the corporate structure was just too calcified. And we couldn't fix it. So, you know, we knew that they would be angry if we left. And they would call us traitors and everything under the book, you know. But we said, we have to. We have to go and we have to see if we can resurrect what we thought was beautiful and what Walt believed in. And so that's why we left. Now, I think it's really, really, we, every picture that we've made, which numbers 12, every picture has been a struggle, financially a struggle. In fact, after we made Secret of Nim, of course, it didn't make a lot of money, got a lot of critical acclaim, but didn't make a lot of money. So then what are we going to do? And we had all these people that were with us as staff that we couldn't afford to pay. When along came an opportunity called Rick Dyer, who brought us a story about a little knight who's trying to save a princess from a dragon and said, I saw Secret of Nim. You guys could do this like I want it done. Then we did Dragon Slayer. 
So that's what happened. And, and then Steven Spielberg saw Secret of Nim and came over and said, I thought this whole age of animation was dead. With Walt, died with Walt. Yeah, how, how can you possibly, you know, do this? And how much did it cost was his next, uh, the next sentence. And he said, and we told him, you know, I think it was six point six point three million. All right, $6.3 million. And he gasped and he says, oh, good. Why don't we make a picture together? And we said, why not? Sports. <laughs> we went there and that, that burst American Tale. And American Tale was just, you know, a thrill to do. But what it did is it woke the sleeping giant, Disney. Because when they saw that American Tale went out there with Steven Spielberg and made a lot of money on its first release... They then doubled the guard, woke up a little bit, and started to find new ways to compete. Now, I know that they work really hard on, you know, putting us away and getting us out of the picture because Disney has a feeling that it's their franchise animation and should belong to no one else. And they own the turf. They own the turf, right. So, but we managed before they were able to actually shut us down. We managed to make 12 movies, 12 full-length feature films, um... And our desire was to try and resurrect that beautiful art form that Walt brought to the whole world. Hmm. That's all it was. And then you have a corporation, you know, who is without a leader, really, in art, without a leader, trying to corporately keep it alive and, you know, make sure the stockholders are happy. So they, they worked really, really hard to make sure that we went down. And I think that's what it was. But why did we leave? We left because we wanted the art to flourish. Actually, on the day we, we went in to resign, we our explanation was we've tried. They had promoted Don to a producer-director at Disney uh, to work on uh, the small one. And uh, he directed the animation on Pete's Dragon. And at one part we said, and we were still gung-ho about being at Disney. We thought we can make a change. But in Pete's Dragon, every time he tried to do something like add shadows under the characters or tone mats over the characters, he'd get chewed out by management saying, what are you doing? You, you, you're going to make it cost more money. Hmm. And it, it, what's interesting is that movie started with nine, or excuse me, ten minutes of, of Elliot the Dragon. Otherwise, he was going to be in, uh, invisible. But when marketing saw the animation, they said, we need more of the dragon. And suddenly it was doubled. But the budget wasn't doubled. The schedule wasn't doubled. And Don got, he said, what am I ordering? Okay, so he started putting in one to two drawings of that dragon. So the animators at least had a, a good pose for what's going to go on in that scene. And on model, so they... No animators, even if they were newbies, just, you know, in and we had a lot of young people right out of college that really hadn't had any experience yet. And and give them a, a leg up to to make a scene happen in a in a short time. And we actually delivered on time, we went over budget by ninety five thousand in double the amount in the same amount of time, and he got chewed out again. And I think that's where the del in the delusion the our delusion, you know, we just we're lost dis our disillusion. Disillusion. I'm sorry, I'm looking for the word, but uh, <laughs> it, that's when we got the phone call. We were working on Fox and the Hound. I got a phone call in my office from this this guy that was an ex executive vice president. I said, I understand you guys are not happy over there. <laughs> and I went, uh, Who is this again? <laughs> and he said, Listen, if we could raise the money, would you guys leave? And uh, I said, well, let me go, go talk, and I'll get back to you. And went talk to, 
who Don and, and John Pomeroy, our other partner, and both of them said, yeah, this, this is not fun anymore. You know, they're not interested in, in, in making it any better. And we felt like we'd missed the boat. All the good stuff was done between 1937 and 1955. So um, we, I came back to him and said, yeah, we'd go. And he says, would you have any idea what you would do? And I said, well, he was working, Don was working with Ken Anderson during uh, Pete's Dragon. And Ken Anderson was a top story guy and character designer. And uh, Ken had read the book Mrs. Bris- Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. It was a Newbery Award winner from 1972. And he had tried to... He, took it to Willie Rytham and said, this is a great book. And he said, what is it? He said, well, it's a story, it's kind of a rat and mice, mice story. And Willie said, we've already done a mouse picture. I'm not, I'm not interested. So Ken marched downstairs and went into Don's office and says, Don, when you guys are in charge, you got to read this book. You guys got to do this. It's going to be a great movie. And so and we knew this already when that phone call came in. I said, I think what we'd like to do is uh, based on a book called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. So they, they ran off to, to get a license for, from it, and uh, they, they pulled it together, and we ended up leaving. And that, and that investor that came in also uh, gave us the money to finish Banjo the Woodpile Cat, we had, and we had like three months to get it finished. We well, worked day and night to get that thing done. Interesting. Four and a half years to do Banjo the Woodpile Cat. Nice weekends while we were working at Disney. In a garage. Amazing. I didn't know that um, Ken Anderson was such a, a, a figure at the beginning there with um, to push along um, the secret of Nim, uh, and it makes perfect sense for those that know of, of Ken Anderson. Yeah, and Don, Don had a great experience with Ken. When they, you can talk about that on Peace Dragon. Yeah, Ken was um, Ken's inspiration, and he uh, he for years and years and years he represented the spirit of that creativity that had been there under Walt's rule when he was actually trying to do art. Um, and Ken was very, very good at it. Every time Ken went on a vacation, he came back with books full of sketches that he had done of the place he was. And, um, and he was very generous. He wanted you to learn. So he would tell you things that you should know. He's the one out there that I felt really, really close to. Um, and on Peace Dragon, he did little things. You know, the actors, they have to shoot all the live action first, and then we fit the dragon later. Well, out on the soundstage when they're shooting, Ken came up with this funny little thing where you would look through a viewfinder and you could tell where the dragon should be and they would put a little bead on the end of the string and they would put a bead up there where the dragon's eyes were and say to the actor, that's the eyes of the dragon, look at that bead. And we had to make sure that when we got back to our desk that there was room to draw a dragon in each of those frames. Because if a live action director will just go in and shoot what he wants to make the scene work but not leaving room for us to add the dragon later. So, I mean, there were a lot of really high moments in our careers and where we triumphed many, many, many times. But, you know, there was always this pursuit where Disney was trying to shut us down. And, and then there was always that world out there of live action. I'm thinking of all the other studios like MGM and Fox and everything who aren't used to the animation world and don't know how to distribute one of those films. So it was really hard to get them to do it. They didn't know quite how to sell it. Um, so, so it was difficult. Steven Spielberg, very, very good. He came up with an innovative way of how to, how to market a picture. And Disney hadn't been doing um, merchandising tie-ins up to the point that we did American Tale. And there was a guy named Brad Globe. Brad Globe, yeah. Yeah, Brad Globe at, at Steven's place who said, why don't we get other companies to come in and sponsor 
So we'll get McDonald's or we'll get pennies and we'll get them to come in and put up money to actually sponsor the film and that way they can produce their product and we'll sell it and they can sell our product. Well, that happened on American Tail. After that happened, Disney said, uh-oh, we're missing something. And they came in and, you know, they outbid everybody and, and pulled people over there to do merchandising tie-ins. Because um, that's a big, big piece of the money. Mm. If you can do sell-through with videos and you can actually have all these things. The, the real funny part about American Tail is it's really the story about a little Jewish mouse. And so they made a Jewish mouse that they could actually merchandise. It was a tiny little mouse, and they could actually, it was a stuffed toy is what it was. And they put it inside of a Christmas stocking. <laughs> now, I don't, know, I don't know who wasn't thinking there, but uh, it didn't work. And they had several boxcars full of these. But within days, just few days of our releasing the picture, uh, there was an objection. And I think the boxcars had to be emptied, and none of those were sunny anymore. We had to separate the stocking from the mouse. So <laughs> they fixed it, though. They they came up with another idea. Yeah, but anyway, that was a that was an interesting experience. And I guess getting back to where we are right now, which is the Indiegogo and trying to raise money, we're in the same situation. We need to know if there is an audience out there for traditional animation. Is it still there? Or any of the studios in town will tell you, oh, no, no, no. The only thing now that sells is CG. That's computer animation. The only thing that sells. The other thing is dead, you know, no. Well, we don't believe that. We think that there's room for two kinds of art. I mean, oil painting did not get rid of watercolor. You know, and I do think also that what Walt conceived has enriched many, many people's lives all over the world as a piece of art. It enriched their lives. Well, we don't want to throw that out. I think it would be good if the public, even a vote of confidence on Indiegogo says, yes, I think it's worthwhile. I think we should bring that back into existence. Mm -hmm. And it requires skill. It requires talent. It requires training of people. And we know that in the animation community, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of kids who who have seen the Disney art, who want to be a part of that, who would like to go draw, only there's no place because the studios say only graphics, only computer graphics sell. And I think that's not a truth. Because I think the real thing is, is that if the story is good, and if it's an experience that moves you emotionally, it can be drawn, it can be um, computerized, it can be whatever you want. So I think to point a finger at, at traditional and say that's the culprit is the wrong judgment. I I agree wholeheartedly. And and something that personally, uh, as as somebody who's into animation, quite, quite it, it does annoy me when I do see the same old argument coming across where people say, and the words always come across, two D is dead. And whereas I think people, uh, as you you said earlier on, Gary, Disney's turf, this turf that Disney of of of. Uh, have kind of lined up for themselves and they very successfully convinced the public that the only 2D animation is Disney animation. So when people say 2D animation is dead, they mean Disney 2D animation is dead. And I think that's a, quite a problem in, that's quite a language problem that, that, that is uh, where, where people, without cause for, for alarm or something, they miscommunicate that idea. 
the dangerous part of this is that sends a message. When you say those words, 2D animation is dead, that sends a message to the economic community, to the financial community, which says don't invest in a 2D picture because you will lose your money. Mm-hmm. That's the message they're sending. Now, Disney made a picture. They tried once again. They made a picture called uh, Princess and the Frog. Well, it was a, it, to me, this is very personal, but to me, it was just a story that was just disastrous. It didn't work at all. You know, and I really don't care about a frog. So, you know, I, Walt, Walt one time said years ago, he said, we're not going to do a picture about a chicken because people eat chickens. You know, so it's hard to get them to like a chicken. And then, you know, so he was always saying, be careful, or monkeys. I mean, it's too close to us humans. So uh, that was his judgment back then. And I think if you say, we're going to do a picture about a frog, boy, it better be a really appealing-looking frog. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. Uh, but worse than that, they got into some kind of voodoo uh, magic, that dark kind of thing, and it, and it had a uh, not a very good feeling about it. And it sort of jumped over human feelings and human emotions. And I think that was part of the problem with it. But once it did not make its money back, that was the last nail in the coffin for Disney. Mm-hmm. They said, get rid of it, store the disc, and to, to take it all away, we'll just stay with, uh, with the computer animation. You know, when you, when you watch that movie, there's an awful lot of good animation in it, but good animation doesn't solve a story. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, it can be entertaining. There's a lot of some top animators that worked on that project. And, and I'm assuming, I would assume, that many of them felt this this isn't the story isn't working yet you know and and there were lots of moments where like the voodoo the good animation but it stopped the movie yeah you suddenly were watching something that had nothing to do with her her quest the, the young girl that wanted her own restaurant mm-hmm. I think if you put that movie up against Walt's version of what art was in a movie when he did Pinocchio or Snow White or uh, even Fantasia, you know, which is that so abstract. Um, when you put that movie up against it, it pales. So something got lost in the in the shuffle. So it'd be really, really nice if they didn't send a message like that. They meaning Disney send a message that 2D is dead. They don't know that. Hmm. They don't really know that. And I think what what I see happening right now, and I'm not a good barometer for the whole for the whole you know public opinion, but. There are a lot of people that say, okay, I've seen that CG and it looked like this one and it looked like this one and it looked like this. So where's the exploration? Where are we looking for the new and the fresh, which Walt always did. He always looked for something new. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, I think we probably threw the baby out with the bath. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you saw that or not. You probably saw it. Did you see Paper Man? It was a short that yes. they did last year. Junk and there out. was hope there because it was 2D CG, you know, working together. And it was fresh. It was fresh, but it was also, it felt like something right out of the 40s or the early 50s, you know. And it had a different look than what's going on out of the Disney company right now. So I keep saying the word Disney, but I, and I'm, I apologize, but... Uh, uh, they're the ones with all the money, and they've now they're, any any company that's uh, that comes on strong with something that's uh, really good or based on comics, uh, you know, uh, they buy them up. You know, mm. <laughs> if you see, they buy up a, a company they were wrestling with for a long time with Pixar. They turn around and soon as Marvel shows that they have, they're now they can put their movies, their comic books into the movies. Wow, there's big money there. I bet they buy them up, and it's, I mean, how much turf do they need? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> who who knows? Who knows? We talked about what was missing from the from the Disney films, and there's I don't think there's any denial that that you guys shook Disney up when Eisner came along and and Katzberg and kind of realised that you know the, the success of American Tale, the success of the Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven, the way that everything that the public reacted, particularly with Land Before Time, my personal favourite as a kid. I even noticed stuff like the the phrasing, the circle of life, the idea of a journey, all of this kind of, these find their ways into the Disney Renaissance, these values. What is it? What was, what's the value of uh, within a, in one of your films that, uh, that was missing from Disney and that perhaps Disney injected back into their films for their 1980s, 1990s Renaissance? You know what? There's, um, there's a book, I know Steven Spielberg's read it, and I've read it for a long, long time. This book by Bruno Bettelheim, who's a psychologist. He, it's called The Uses of Enchantment. It's a wonderful book. If they don't have it, if you don't have it, go get it and read it. It's very good. And it explains that the fairy tales are very, very useful because in growing up from just childhood on and up, we are not able to process inside of us what an abstract idea is. And so the fairy tales provide an explanation until you're mature enough to be able to understand what adults know. Um, for example, you can say, uh, um, oh, we'll say I, I pay three little pigs, three little pigs. We have a foolish little pig who builds his house of straw, one who builds his house of wood, and then the smart little pig who looks to the future and builds his house strong so nothing can happen and then as it plays out the wolf comes and blows the two houses down but it's only safe where there was a wise little pig who provided for the future now what will happen is the kids will see that and already they're building in their head what really works in life if you get a mother or a father who, who loves you one moment and kisses his son and then the next moment you know he slaps him on the butt then the kid says hmm I got a dad that's two things, and and he's sometimes mean to me and sometimes he's kind to me. I don't know what that is. Well, there'll be in a fairy tale, there'll be a witch who is really, really bad, and then there'll be a good witch who is really, really good. And so you begin to say, oh, there's two kinds of behavior there. And children can get that. But as you get older, of course, you know that it's just temper. You know, when someone loses their temper. Yeah. So I think this uses of... Enchantment, written by Bettelheim, is a really good way of looking at things. And the pictures that we've tried to do have tried to put in there morals that say, if you do this, this is the result. If you do that, it's not going to be a good result. And then you, you have villains in those pictures that are strong enough and scary enough to where you want to stay away from them. Because in life, you're going to meet those villains. You're going to meet somebody who is out to hurt you. So I think as a child, you have to see it first in a panorama or in a little story where you see it happening. Now, if you, if you ignore that and you just pander to the public, and what you do is you go out there and make everything sugar-coated because that'll sell, that's a very, very, very disservice to the public and to children. Hmm. One of the things that, that I tell people, you know, if I go see a movie and if I don't cry at some point in that movie, then that movie was worthless to me, quite frankly. I need to feel... Our idea is to make a movie on several levels. 
for the seven-year-old all the way up to the granny and grandpa the age. So let's say eight to 80. And that was the whole idea on, on uh, Mrs. Brisby and the, and the Rats of Nim, or the Secret of Nim. And um, I just saw the interview, the, uh, the uh, docu- four-hour documentary on Walt Disney. And they emphasized the fact that when he got to Snow White, what he really wanted to do is see if he could make the audience cry. And in almost every movie we've done, we've been able to make the audience cry. You can make them laugh easily, but cry, you're right. You know, so you're, they're really vested in those characters if you get them to cry. And I remember, uh, I didn't see the premiere of All Dogs Go to Heaven, but my wife went over, to, we were doing it in Ireland, and. My wife went over to the States, uh, and uh, she called me on the phone at the end of it, and she said, Honey, I, I, I just left the theater, and I mean, I've still got tears in my eyes. And she says, I think we're in trouble. I said, What's wrong? She says, Well, when the angel came for, uh, for Charlie in the end, the kids recognized if, as, <laughs> as, as the angel came into the room, they all started saying, Oh, Mom, Mommy. They're going to take Charlie again. He's going to die again. And every all the children in the audience started to cry. And I said, "We well, couldn't ask for anything better." Than that. <laughs> you know, I, I'm getting cold chills now thinking about it. But I mean, it's the same thing you, that happened to Littlefoot when his mother died. You had people sobbing in the audience. I mean, yeah, if you can touch people like that, you know, and stir their emotions. And I mean, the, the, when you watch Enim. When Mrs. Brisby goes into the owl, I watched little kids climb up in their parents' lap. Mm. They didn't turn away from the movie, but they they went closer to their parents. I saw children, uh, I don't know, it was probably 10 minutes into into The Secret of Them, have to go to the bathroom. And they would go out of the thing, and then they would walk backwards with their parents. <laughs> watching the movie all the way up, and they would go to the back of the, the theater and stand at the door, and then you and I was watching people, not watching the movie because we were on the road. That was somewhere in Indianapolis, and all of a sudden the little girl started jumping up and down, and, and the father grabbed her hand, and they ran out, and they weren't gone for more than twenty seconds, and they were back, <laughs> and slowly walking down the aisles because they didn't to not trip, but they wanted to watch what was going on, and it was like hardly anybody left once they went in. In fact, the manager of that theater said, "I'm not sure I like your movie," and I said, "What's wrong?" He says, nobody's going out to get popcorn. <laughs> they didn't get the popcorn before they went in. They didn't come out after the movie started. And that was thrilling, really mm. thrilling, when you know you can grab an audience like that. You mentioned Ireland there. And I think it would be a, a disservice to our Irish listeners if uh, if we didn't talk about Ireland and the effect that you had on the area and the way that the Ireland now as a has this fantastic industry. What was your experience working in Ireland it was a wonderful experience, you know. At first, most of our, we took, we took 87 of our artists and technicians and management people, their families, their spouses, their dogs, their cats, to Ireland. And it was like moving an army when you think about it. <laughs> Let me interject something. The reason we went to Ireland was because American Tail came out and Universal said, well, we want to wait to see if the results are really good before you go on paying your crew to make another movie. And the only way we could get pay or play from Universal was to, the only way we could stay alive was to take the people he just mentioned and go to a country that would fund us, that would give us money. And the IDA, 
in Ireland came forward and said, you know what, okay, okay, we'll help you, come over here and train our people. And we moved families across the ocean to Ireland to be able to train, to be able to stay in business. There's, there's a funny story that when at the end of Secret and M, uh, John Pomeroy's wife got very depressed and she went to see, a, a, do you know what a phrenologist is? Uh, the, is with the yeah, they, skull. They, they, yeah, they, they check your skull. It's sort of like a psychic, you know, and they read the bumps of your skull. And she says, uh, you're an artist. And, and the girl said, yes, I am. Huh. Um, you're with, you, are you in some sort of crusade with your, with your artist friends? And she says, well, actually, sort of. And she says, stay with them. They will meet a silver-haired gentleman, and he will take them to a faraway island and it will become very successful. And it wasn't, it was, uh, that would have been like in August, maybe even after we had a union strike in, in, uh, in the first part of August because it was a, a negotiation times for the big studios. And uh, so it was, uh, we met this guy, Rick Dyer, about Dragon Flare in September, October, excuse me. And in January, a silverhead gentleman was introduced to us. He looked like a banker, you know, so it was a pinstripe suit, three-piece suit, really expensive wingtip shoes, came in, introduced himself. I don't think he said more than 10 words. He just listened. We showed him part of Secret and M. We showed him around the studio. In the end, he smiled at us and he shook our hand. He says, I can't help you right now, but I will be back. Silver-haired gentleman. When he came back, he, he was our consultant for the next two years. And eventually took us to Ireland. Well, his name was Sullivan. Yeah, that's a very Irish name. Morris Sullivan, you know, so that's why when we got to Ireland, he had done all of the political moves to get us there, and we put his name on the studio, Sullivan Bluth. Mm -hmm. and it's, yeah, because I think that just opened doors. And the IDA paid us for each person that we would train to be an animator. They paid so much money, so we were able to go in and keep our crew alive to be able to do Universal's second picture, or Stephen's second, which was Land Before Time. Had we not moved to Ireland, Land Before Time would not have happened. Wow. And that's, well, as I say, that's my, my personal favourite, so, so thank goodness for Mr. Sullivan. <laughs> and uh, maybe the phrenologist as well. I, I had just remodeled my house. And <laughs> And everything was, you know, I thought, well, and I got my house looking really, really good, and I felt really good about it when Moore said, guys, we're going to Ireland. If we balked, if we balked, he said, no, 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 it'll be easy. All you do is you're going to pack your bags, you'll get on a plane, have a couple of drinks, and you'll be there. Yeah, and we arrived, <laughs> we arrived in Ireland in the worst winter they'd had in 100, 100 years. <laughs> Freezing cold, and it was nighttime. That's when we arrived. And our, and our uh, management team that we picked in Ireland had set up a dinner at the airport when we let, when we landed. We went in there and no sooner sat down than the, all the power went out in the airport. <laughs> we went, oh my God, what kind of omen is this? <laughs> See, and everyone took dogs and cats, which had to go into quarantine. It was very sad. For six months, wow. everybody on weekends was going out to this little kennel to visit their pets that they used to have in their house. You know, there was a lot of sadness and sacrifice, I think, in getting that picture to happen. But uh, but worth it, would you say? Yes. In the end, yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, yeah. the, the Irish, they're great people. 
you know, I try to go every other Christmas over there and visit friends, and we stay with some friends in Donegal, but spend a few days in Dublin and meet meet a lot of the ex-employees there that have, many of them you know, came to, to Arizona with us and worked on Anastasia and Bartok the Magnificent and Titan AE. That's and, right, coming home was a regret, everybody came the opposite direction. We brought Irish people back to Arizona, where we had taken American people to Ireland. And some of those people went on to work at, when Fox was shut down here in Arizona, many of them went to DreamWorks, they went to Disney, they went to Pixar. Some, some were at Disney for the next 10 years and eventually migrated back to home because they had children now and their, and their parents, or they wanted to be closer to their grandchildren. Hmm. So uh, it, it was a great and unique experience. It really was. To go in there, you had people that were good artists, but they didn't know really anything about feature animation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a big, and there was no industry there. There was uh, Jimmy Murakami used to do commercials there, and he had about when I first met him before we moved to Ireland. I, I was going to Ireland. We set up a campaign place, but he had introduced to me somebody that, that we made uh, our uh, a supervisor of campaign. She was an American that lived in Ireland, and uh, she would work with him whenever he did commercials. Mm-hmm. Do you know what Ireland? What I noticed when we were there, Ireland is a musical place. Everybody sings, um, they get together in the pubs, they sing there, they dance, they, they're very, very musical. And what was encouraging by going to Ireland instead of some other part of the world was that if they had that spirit about them, that could come through the end of the pencil. So, you know, first of all, what's in the soul, and then that comes out the end of the pencil. So you always hunt for employees that, uh, that have that lyrical spirit inside of their body something in their mind and everything that makes them a little bit at rest unrest you know and they sing they dance they drink they party they have a good time usually that comes out on the paper ready in life yeah good good it's nice that's nice to hear and obviously the if you look at the irish animation industry today well it's there you know and it was it was planted there back then during that time too we set up a thing with the sheridan college in in toronto uh or oakville uh, but it's in very close to Toronto. Uh, we, in 1989, we were a, a little bit behind getting uh, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven done, and I called over to the, and I talked to the president. They're actually one of, no, I didn't know really anybody there, but we, we went over there and, and talked to the president by phone, sorry, I didn't go there, and said, would you allow like a dozen of your students come to Ireland and work with us for six months and give them credit towards their towards their degree for the experience that they're going to have here. And they agreed to do that. Mm. And uh, we brought 12 people over, and I think four or five stayed. One of them became a directing animator within, within about 14 months. Wow. Very talented young man. And uh, he'd only gone to six months of, of, of school. He never did graduate from Sheridan College. <laughs> they probably should have, in the end, given him an honorary degree. So... But it was a good experience. The other thing, too, is Bally Fermat College. Oh, that's what we were doing, sorry. Yeah. Bally Fermat College, we set up an animation program there, which was which was equal to that school in Canada. And Bally Fermat then began to train people to be animators. And I think that was a great a great move. And they, what we did is we paid Sheridan College for their syllabi so that they were being they were being taught with the same program that, that Sheridan was. So when they graduated from Bally Fermat, they were also got a certificate from Sheridan College. Wow. Okay. So you got to kind of work into a similar uh, model to what Walt Disney worked on with uh, CalArts. 
Well, actually, it was, when he did it, it was it was Shinar. Mm-hmm. When I got out of college and and uh, out of my out of community college, and I I, I wrote to uh, Shinard, and this was in 1969, and I said I sent him my portfolio, and they said, you know, we love your portfolio, but uh, we're not accepting any new students. We're full, and we're moving. We're moving to Valencia. We will now be called CalArts. And uh, all of uh, Disney had had sent his people to uh, to Chenard mm. to to get instruction, like in the late thirties. Wow, well that's 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 great um, to see. Uh, well, if you look now, I'm sure you must be quite proud of that legacy of Ireland and the way that Ireland is uh, is thriving and and as a, as an industry now we have over in Ireland there's uh, there's Cartoon Saloon, Brown Bag, all these big companies that are creating yeah. some some wonderful content. When you see your work taken we were, we were touched on this earlier on so, uh, the, i want to see the comparison between uh, i think it's an obvious comparison between land before time and disney's dinosaur i, I i'm glad you're chuckling <laughs> gary I don't, know, I don't know how don feels about it but i'm glad you're chuckling everybody says it's the same story you know yeah and 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 it's funny one of the directors worked with us on on uh on our our version land before time who was it Ralph. Oh, Ralph. Sunday. Yeah, he was the co-director. Oh, he did his own. He did his own uh, dinosaur picture too. At one point, his brother directed a picture in uh, London called "We're Back." Yeah, it was that a Spielberg film as well. Did he? Yes. He... It was Universal? I think Spielberg was. In, I was may have been an executive. Yeah, I don't know. So, a fan of dinosaurs, then? Well, you know, Stephen, as when he explained what we were about, uh, I don't know, eight months into American Tale, he says, I, he invited us over for, for lunch. He says, I got another idea, because our contract was a two-picture two contract. Hmm. And he says, here's, here, here's what it is. And he told us a story about uh, him and George Lucas had long wanted to do a, a, an animated dinosaur movie. And this one was going to be about basically an ethnic story, five different ethnics and dinosaurs who had to, they lost their families and now they had to work together to make their way to find where their parents went. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and George wanted to make that with animatronics or some, some, some kind of, no, C- CG. C- well, CG, whatever it was, but he did not want it animated. So the two were not in total agreement when we went into that project. And that was a project that we had to go to Ireland to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Stephen was adamant that you know it could be animated, because he, he loves animation. So um, that's the that's the re- the two of them were sort of. And George was kind of standoffish for a long while on that picture. He finally came into you know agreeing that it's, it was a good thing, but it wasn't for a long time into it. Well, I, I think we, we'd like to talk a bit more now about, about Dragon's Lair, the movie. With that being such a successful, because you've not just had success within features and, and shorts, also within, within games, there was also Space Ace and, 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 and these games which, which were produced at the time. What, what is it that you want to take from such a successful game and translate into a movie? Well, that's a really, really good question. Um, first of all, the game, when we were doing it, uh, we were trying to stay alive, and the game was something we did just sort of a, like a lark. We just thought, well, okay, well, this will keep everybody paid, keep the staff together, and we'll just have fun with it. So it wasn't anything like the Holy Grail. And uh, so we've got little flaws in it, like we have a, a knight who's not too good, and he's kind of um, quite clumsy, I could say that. But the worst thing is we have a princess who has an airhead. <laughs> 
So, so we cannot, you know, just literally because the society has changed and, and we have different rules nowadays. I think what we have to do is we have to develop those two characters further. Easy character is Mordrock because he's the villain, and and we do mean villains. We can do that well, but anyone can do a mean, mean villain. But to do subtlety of character in the in the love story, and this is going to be a love story uh, between Daphne and Dirk, I think is going to be uh, a challenge. Uh, it will. We have a we have a leg up, I think, in the fact that if we can make it be or even look like hand drawn traditional animation that feels like an art, then I think, you know, it's going to get some attention. But the story and the script are probably the most important thing we can pay attention to. With this um, Indiegogo money that we're going to be getting, a lot of that money will go towards not just a four-minute presentation piece, but it will go towards finding a script writer that can write a script that, are, that will get everyone's attention. The script is a thing. So, so one, the one thing about the game that I think is important is its title. When we moved to Ireland, I went to a uh, to a art school. The first art school I, I went to, um, they were, the students rushed me. I mean, it was like they all came running up and suddenly wanted autographs. And and it wasn't about Secret and Him. And they hadn't seen American Tale. It was all about Dragon's Lair. They were like gaga over Dragon's Lair. And it's gone on and on and on. The one name that seems to stand out in, in many, many countries is they know that we were the ones that did Dragon's Lair. So it's that title. It's almost like picking a book off of uh, the, the, the bestseller list, a fairy tale from the bestseller list. That it, it has that same kind of stigma. That it, that it, not with the young people anymore. They don't even know what Dragon's Lair was, but their parents do. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, a, I guess you will, it's recognizable. People will be familiar with it. And uh, I, we think, and we, it probably would have been better to do it 15 years ago or 10 years ago, uh, but we still think it's valid, uh, the title and, and uh, these characters. And the game's still selling. I don't know why. <laughs> you can buy it as an app for your phone and play it for free. I mean, there's, there's a lot of very, very complicated games out there that are just uh, visually stunning to look at. You know, and and uh, they're all CG, by the way. Uh, and what we have here is a simple little game, which is 2D, and people are still buying that. That's encouraging to me. Yeah. That maybe they still like the look of it. You know, and, and animation, it has a different look. It's a flat color. You know, once you start shading it and shading it, and, and just being critical a minute of CG... What I think is it's moving more and more, and they're trying more and more to imitate real, what the camera might photograph with an actor. Well, if you go clear over there, why not just photograph an actor? Um, Of course, maybe it will cost less, but I don't think so. You could pay an actor and uh, probably do it for less than you get into all these CG things. CG is wonderful. I don't want you to think that I don't believe that. It's wonderful, and the visuals that it can create are fantastic. And you see it all the time. There wouldn't even been a Titanic, the movie, unless CG had come in there and you know done that ship and all that stuff. That the people falling down the the uh, you can't photograph that live. And a lot of times, stuntmen you know rehurt themselves trying to get an, an illusion onto the screen. Whereas with CG, you can do anything. Hmm. So it's wonderful, and it's an art form that is here to stay. But there is a look of classical that is way miles apart from the CG. 
And that's what we're trying to do with Dragon's Lair, the movie, is see if we can't resurrect that, make an experience that's done in that style of artwork that the audience will gasp and say, whoa, that's beautiful too. I think uh, you talked there about CG and about the the idea of having um, Dirk and Daphne as, as, as live-action actors. I think the secondary characters, the other characters, the, the villains and the, the monsters and the tentacles and everything else, there is a... A bouncy life to those to those uh, to those characters within within the game that can only really be realised in two D. I've not seen that kind of thing realised in CG yet. Seems like CG depends heavily on script and dialogue. So a lot of dialogue seems to be coming out of the characters' mouths, and animators tend to do what I call mugging. So they mug the mouth and the eyes and everything to to make it be funny. And the whole attempt is to be funny with a little bit of heart, but not too much. You know, don't get the audience to thinking too much. Mm. Um, so what happens is, I can go to one of those movies, and I usually go go see them all just to see what they're doing. Uh, and I wind up sitting there looking and and not feeling. And I don't know why that's happening to me. I'm trying to be really objective, but I find that I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm I'm not really engaged. Mm. And I don't know why. I don't know why. Perhaps it goes back to that art thing that you were talking about. You have to be able to uh, to, to feel it. Has it been a, a work of art or not? And if it isn't, if you don't feel it, then perhaps it's something that uh, it's it's asking questions that. Even the cutting, you know, like I noticed, it's, uh, I love Pinocchio. I think Pinocchio is a wonderful, wonderful film. Not only is it about a coming of age and a little boy who isn't even human, he's wood. You know, and he has to learn lessons to be able to qualify to be a real person. And then he has a conscience right there by him trying to instruct him. And then he has some kind of a deity like a blue fairy, you know, who comes in and bails him out when the conscience can't. <laughs> You've got all of this going on in that picture. And each cut, you, sometimes it takes your breath away. When, you know, he's down there and the whale comes up after him, the way it's staged, everything about it is just breathtaking. You know, and the story, you're so engaged in the story and you're so rooting for this little wooden boy that, you know, you can wind up feeling something very deeply. And not only that, you take it home with you. By the time you've left the theater and gone home, those visions that you saw on the screen are still in your head. Very, very powerful. Scarred your brain, actually. <laughs> in a good way. But, uh, but I think that's the, that was the genius of Walt. He was driven, probably not a very happy man his whole lifelong because driven people, <laughs> they have a hard time being normal people. And um, he was driven and he produced something that I think changed the world in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, and it let us, he, he was teaching us how to dream. And that's an important ingredient in living a good life. You have to dream. And society and the financial people will try and kill the dreams try and make you be followers to their dream, which is just really about money. And, um, and so that's a, that's a great tragedy, I think, in our society. And when people lose dreams and hope, they begin to do horrible things. Horrible things. Yes. Like hurting each other, you know, and violent things. And passing judgments, and they become cynical. You gotta hang on to hope, and I think that's one thing that Walt did in his pictures. He gave you hope. A picture that probably not too many people have seen that was Walt's favorite picture. Do you know what it is? No. It's a, it's a picture called So Dear to My Heart. 
and it's about a little boy who dreamed he was going to go to the fair and win the blue ribbon with a black sheep. And and it's actually, I've read a lot about this one, it's actually a story that Walt felt very close to because it felt like his life. Okay. And you don't see it around very much, but it's good. And it's a combination picture. It has a lot of animation in it. Uh, which teaches... Oh, yeah, and the animation, the, the song, the song I'm thinking of is the little boy was giving up and this little creature, this little owl comes out of a scrapbook and he sings a song to the little boy who's up in his bed, you know, in the attic of his house. And he says, it's what you do with what you got, never mind how much you got. It's what you do with what you got that pays off in the end. Now, that's a lesson. That's the same as... Um, uh, don't say something nice if you can't say nothing at all. But you learned in Bambi. So you, you, you've got all these wonderful little songs and everything that are coming at you in such a way, and they're changing the way you think. Now we're back to Bruno Bettelheim. We're back to the psychology of fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And Walt knew that well. He was making a fairy tale, and he was making a piece of art. We lost it. Is that the, so, is that the philosophy that you're going to drag forward with um, the Dragon's Lair movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's not what, you know, a lot of people think we're going to ex- just expand the game and make a movie of uh, what was that all about, but it's not that. It's going to be a prequel, and we're going to know all the backstory of, of those two from the time they were little kids. They knew each other. And, uh, and, and, and what kids do when they go through that different parts of their life. And finally, finally, at some point in their late teens, they're going to fall in love with each other. So... Um, it, it's gonna it's gonna be a, a very moving story, I think. Excellent. So you've already a story in mind. Um, I one of my favourite stories about about um, about Dragon's Lair is the fact that you you just you got friends to voice the uh, these now iconic kind <laughs> of characters. They were not just friends. They were the editor was the voice of Dirk. Yeah. And and our uh, cleanup supervisor was the voice of Daphne. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't talk that way normally, but she could put on a pretty silly. And we have no you know. script, so all they make is sounds. Well, you wrote you wrote the script for her her dialogue. The one who the one who yeah she she talks a little bit when she's in the bubble, but it's all airhead. And the only one who really really talks and likes likes to talk is uh, the villain. The yeah. villain, and he's a comic villain. I mean, he's really not too serious, but I think we have to get serious with him in the movie. Mm-hmm. So are you, you're. Uh, ready and willing for this this next step and and to to, to step back into uh feature animation via this right. campaign my wife keeps asking that question are you sure you want to do this <laughs> and are you i don't want to sound it's like big, your wife it's a big deal it absorbs your entire being you know and and life gets in the way you you gotta you gotta stay focused really gotta immerse yourself in it mm-hmm Excellent. So, when can we expect to see the? Or would 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 backers be able to see the the four minute pitch uh, video? Probably around first part of July, I think. We've got it. We're once we got the money. No, we've got the money. We've got a twenty one week schedule to get it done. Wow, that's fantastic. So uh, that's our plan, mm-hmm. and uh, and hopefully uh, along the road with all the noise we're making right now. Uh, There'll be people watching and saying, um, "I need to talk to those guys. I'd like to invest in their movie." Mm-hmm. You know, so part of this is the noise we make, you know, and and the invite for people to to contribute. It may stretch 
higher up the, up the uh, food chain to people that could actually help fund the real movie. Because it's, it's got a budget of $70 million, mm-hmm. which is a tight budget these days. Absolutely. Now, if you look at what uh, all the other studios are doing, Pixar and Disney's so they won't tell you the truth, but I'd say they're all spending somewhere between 140 and $300 million for one movie. And is that before you uh, have the promotional uh, budget as well? Yes, and I think now in this world, uh, with uh, with what's going on on the internet, uh, an awful lot of that can happen on the internet. Hmm. You know, the promotion, uh, having people that they can actually see a a video blog that goes on where they're actually watching the movie happen for mem- like members. Mm-hmm. They'll have uh, you know a secure. Uh, Link to go in and 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 watch some of the, the the blog video blogs we do as we as we go through making this making this movie, which it, which allows them then the experience of even though they're not here with us and and they're not an animator or, or a, someone familiar with what's going on in animation they'll learn a lot from it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, uh, I think that's a unique thing, and, and not many people are doing that. So uh, we usually keep it behind closed doors. You don't want anybody trying to make something similar and then ride your promotions when you get done. We had a, we had a lot of situations like that. When we did Anastasia, a month before Anastasia came out, somebody had done a, a cheap version of an Anastasia and, and, and put it out as a DVD and rode, our, rode Fox's uh, promotion that they were doing for Anastasia at the time. You see that an awful lot with the Disney films as well. All their uh, films will get rebranded. Old films will get rebranded and and to fit Frozen or Planes or whatever's coming out of the studio. That's that's a quite a quite horrific practice. But yeah, yeah. Well, they think, you know they can probably put something together for for a million dollars and, and name it something similar. Mm-hmm. People will mistakenly buy it, and uh, and these people will make a profit on it because they do it for such an inexpensive cost. Hmm. It's a it's a wrestling match, you know. Trying to get the picture done and done on time and look good and know that it's connecting, uh, even to the point of testing them, you know, taking it and, and you may even test something that's not completely done yet to see if it's uh, that people are are in, they invest themselves in in the movie and and you get lots of people if you do it in the wrong place, like if you're doing a test in L.A., you got a lot of offspring of people who work in the industry they can't wait to go look at the movie and tear it apart but if you pick a city like Denver or Seattle or um, you know where people go to the movies all the time because weather can be pretty abhorrent you know and and it's a place to go like here in Phoenix the place to go get some air conditioning for free you know (laughs) compared to what you'll pay for your air conditioning at home but uh, you know those are good places to go test the market because they're they're middle America and uh Find out if you're touching their soul. Mm, excellent. Well, I'm pretty sure that, that in a few years' time, the answer will be Dragon's Lair, the movie. But each of you as individuals, what's been your favorite production that you guys have either worked on or favorite to look back on and watch? That's simple as me. Secret of Noom. Yeah? That, that, that was a, a really unique experience and emotional experience. Uh, we, we showed that film uh, at a film fest in 2005 down in uh, Savannah, Georgia. Full house. And uh, it was going to be a moment where they've invited us to come down to give us a Lifetime Achievement Award. So 
they showed the movie, and then as we were walking towards the stage, um, you know, the audience was still applauding. I think the woman that, that runs the school, or owns the school uh, down there, uh, Savannah College of Art and Design, um, she announced our names, but I don't even think that people heard our names, but as we walked down to the stage, I was looking at the people who walked by. Most of the women, their mascara was all messed up down in their eyes. We made them cry again on a movie that was... Uh, you know, 20 years old, wow. uh, and it was, it was nice, to, it was a great feeling, and uh, got that same feeling as we finished that movie and saw it in the theaters there, you know, we thought we'd done something good, and uh, unfortunately, it got surrounded by a couple of Disney movies, and and uh, people went to, at, at that time of year, people, or sorry, in our, in our movie, came out they went in the summer, and uh in fact, on the 4th of July, and we had plans it was going to open at the end of August. Hmm. And sometime in March, they said, we have to move it up because we're going to, uh, we want to go out on 4th of July. And we just looked at them with our mouths open. What are you talking about? E.T.'s coming on the 4th of July. All, and it was like $600 million box office uh, picks coming out at that time. And we were, they put us right in the middle of that. And Don once said, geez, we were the best kept secret in town. You know, it was kind of a pun on secret of name. It definitely was secret. <laughs> so uh, it was it was a shock to us. Hmm. But Nim is still our favorite. And if you've said a favorite, a favorite of all time, it would be for me. It would be either Pinocchio or Bambi as the most inspirational. Hmm. I don't. A good a good example probably is that your first kiss. That's the one you remember. Well. Gary, Don, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Very best of luck with the the Indiegogo campaign. Looking at, at the time of recording, looking at the stats, I don't think you have much of a problem. Those Dragon Lair fans are still there, <laughs> and they still want to see the film, and we're all very much looking forward to seeing it and seeing where it goes. Um, hopefully, seeing the feature in the future, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll have a chat then when you're doing the promotion for that. Okay, thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Don Squiggly. Thank Cheers. You. That was Don Bluth and Gary Goldman chatting with Steve. Many thanks to those chaps. And if you're listening to this episode when it comes out, there's still a couple days to support Dragon's Lair the movie. Just search for Dragon's Lair Returns on Indiegogo.com. Get those goodies while the goody getting's good. And that's our first podcast of 2016. Thanks for listening. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve Henderson is on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. And Don Bluth can be followed at Don Bluth. You can also visit DonBluth.com. Don't forget to check out Squiggly.com for a whole host of animation coverage. Recent features include Richard Starzak on the BAFTA nomination for Shaun the Sheep, new animation from Claude Cloutier and Cordell Barker in the run-up to the Oscar nominations, Anya director Damien O'Connor on the recent online release of his film After You, Sheridan graduate Edulyn Capulong on her wonderful short Lucy and the Limbs, which we recently screened at MAF, a look at some of this year's upcoming animated features, and a whole bunch more. And once again, that's squiggly.com. You can follow us on Twitter at squiggly and on facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. Spread the word. We like word spreaders. And if you want to get in touch with us, please don't be shy. Until next time. Happy animating.